0: In today's episode of the Chavrusa podcast, the secret of life, or lack thereof. In this episode, the story of the man locked out of over 7,000 bitcoins and its connection to equanimous living, the take on spiritual patience, the first ever quotation from Moses, and its lasting reverberations on greatness and responsibility, the two factors lacking within me. That contribute to riots and unrefined behavior in society, and a paradigm-shifting Torah directive to experience a new type of secrecy. I'm Moshe Chambra. Thank you so much for joining me in this exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have inspired some of history's greatest men and women for over three thousand years. There's a man living out in San Francisco. His name is Stephen Thomas. And he's the owner of 7,002 Bitcoins. Each Bitcoin is worth, it depends on the day, it fluctuates, but I think it's now at like $36,000 a pop. So that's worth about $220 million. The problem is, is that he does not remember the password for the key, um, small hard drive. It's known as the iron key, which contains the the digital wallet that holds the bitcoins. Now, the way this key works is you have 10 tries at the password. And if you miss it, it self-destructs and encrypts it for forever. And it's lost the cryptocurrency. And now he's already tried eight of his passwords. This is in yesterday's New York Times reporting. He's tried eight of them. Missed out on all eight. He's got two left. If he misses on these last two, he loses all the $220 million worth of Bitcoin that he has. Now, this is fascinating stuff. (laughs) Very anxiety-inducing, especially considering the topic that we're exploring now, mindfulness and anxieties and overcoming that would be a fascinating experiment of how one navigates um, mindfulness if they would be in a scenario like this. Obviously, it's pretty extreme on both ends. Yeah, it would be an interesting test to take somebody that's worked through mindfulness and to see the differences in how they would approach it. Now, uh, this person, Stefan, 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 um, just retweeted the article today on Twitter and writes, it's a painful memory. I hope others can learn from my mistakes. An ounce of foresight could have prevented a decade of regret. So it sounds like it was uh, pretty intense for him. Decade of regret, painful memories. And we talked about the administering test to get into the Arizal school, the mystic from Tzfa. If you wanted to get in, you have to be a person that had complete equanimity. That no matter the greatest insult hurled at you, the greatest compliments hurled at you, it would not faze you. So what about if you're in a situation like this, $220 million worth of cryptocurrencies at risk, can you maintain your equanimity in such a scenario? That's something, that's something. That's the level we wanna reach, and I think it's possible. I do, I think it's possible to reach that point, and I think there have been people in the generation that's tested, it's not just a, th- uh, a guess and a theory here, but I think there are people that faced with tremendous amount of financial incentives one way or the other, were able to hold true to their calmness and principles, and it didn't knock them out of shape. It wasn't just that they held true to their principles and then agonized it and had decades of regret or decades worth of satisfaction, but that it didn't register for them because it wasn't a decision. When you have clarity in life, when you have composure, when you have equanimity, when you have yeshuvadat, you're settled into the moment, you're, you're zoned in, you're going to reach a point that even in a scenario like this, it won't affect you. That's something super high. I don't think I'm there yet, uh, but maybe something we could strive for. Let me know what you guys think. On Friday's Chavrusa, I was asked why I hadn't released a statement on the riots in the capital. And the question was asked again today. And we talked about on Friday, the concept of leadership and the deferring vision to here is what is a leader? Is a leader, a social media activist, somebody that's putting out public statements, somebody that's releasing condemnations, or is a leader, a leader of people that when there's somebody that's willing to receive somebody that's looking for guidance, somebody that's looking to grow. Then the leader is there to instruct, to role model, to discuss ideas. But releasing statements, releasing public statements, condemning people does not serve to inspire. It does not call on people to draw upon their inner reserves of of moral reflection and growth. Rather, it will alienate the people you're condemning because they're not going to be receptive to your public condemnation. And it's it said, I get it. It feels good. It feels good when you release a statement because you have this sense of like moral su- superior superiority. You you feel oh look, I'm the one that uh, condemns these type of things because I'm a uh arbiter of morality and goodness. And then you get a whole bunch of likes and and shares and it's great. But at the end of the day, that is not the the definition. Of what a, a Rav, what a leader is. When the Mishnah Perkeavo says, a rav," but point for yourself a leader. It's saying somebody that will be able to instruct you in your personal growth, somebody that could give you objective advice, somebody that could give you a listening ear and constructive criticism. And I think a perfect example of this is Rav Aaron Lopiansky, Rosh in Silver Spring, Maryland, down the block from where I am recording this right now. Rav Lopiansky just penned a beautiful article in the Meshbacha magazine. It's going to appear in this week's edition. And Rav Lopiansky, instead of condemning, instead of critiquing, instead of um, putting out a vanilla statement about who to condemn and what not, what to condemn, etc., um, Rav Lopiansky draws from the Torah sources and he says that when somebody sees the Talmud says, if you experience, you witness somebody that committed a very depraved act, an immoral act, and you see her degradation, you see the public shame that she's going through. So what you should do is take upon yourself a moral resolution. Take on something in your own personal growth. And the question is, Why? You didn't do anything wrong. You happened to witness that this person did whatever, but now I should have to take on some moral growth. I'm the good one here. Why me? And he says that the the idea is twofold. Number one, number one is that when there's a breach in society, when things become the norm, then it infiltrates and it influences all of society, which is a problem. I think in so much of today's video games and entertainment that. Sometimes even very young children are exposed to is super violent. There's a lot of gore and there's a lot of killing and whatnot. And yeah, um, a one-time thing is not a is not a life-changing event. But when it's so prevalent and it's so normalized in society, then that that itself becomes a a line that you want to draw. You want to make it that it's a shocking event. You want it to be shocking when there's when there's a, a a mega breach of crime or Something And therefore, you should take on yourself and your own growth. Don't criticize and critique them. Them, whoever they is. Yeah, they, the ambiguous they. They should do something. They should stop. They. Everybody has this they. You know, it's up to them. Um This mysterious they. The capital T is going to solve all the issues. But take it upon yourself. That's number one. Number two is because there's a, a classic idea in Jewish thought that Anything that happens, anything that you experience is for a reason. And therefore, when you experience this person that did something immoral, that in itself is a mirror for you to draw inference, to, a mirror for you to reflect, to take on something, to do something. We quoted once from the Baal Shanto. The Baal Shanto says that if you see a flaw in somebody else, that's a mirror, Hashem sending you a message. You, you have that flaw within yourself and work on it. Instead of critiquing them, instead of criticizing them, work on it yourself. That's the, uh, the very concept of eye and toe, of somebody that has such a, a good eye. If you, if you are perfect in a certain area, if you've worked on yourself, you're not going to see that flaw in others. You will only see the good. If you're seeing that flaw in others, it's a message for you. So if we see flaws, if we see flaws in rioters, if we see flaws in violent acts, if we see flaws in people's rhetoric. So instead of releasing public condemnations, let's work on ourselves to try to become better. This is Rav Aron Lepiatinsky's message. Don't condemn others. Work on it yourself. You look at the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi saw Mayor Kagan. He saw that there was a problem of unrefined speech in his time. And the rhetoric was, was frankly coarse and derogatory and, and repulsive. So instead he went about, instead of condemning it, he went around inspiring people telling them ideas of refined speech and what does it mean to have refined speech and the advantages and relationships and businesses and family, etc. But that's the route to go. And Revar points out that if you want to learn from here, this episode of what happened, or not only this episode, but in, in the past few months, current events and the the divisiveness and the the violence that has come forth, um, it's really two things. There's two things we could focus on, two factors that are critically missing. Number one, he refers to das. Das is is wisdom, is nuance. We spoke about this back in the first episode of, on our topic of mindfulness. Yishuv hadas. Yishuv is to settle into das. Is completely unifying the moment. To take all disparate thoughts, to take different perspectives, to take to take these uh, dialectical elements in the world and integrate it, synthesize it. Not to have this. This very simplistic sloganism of two three-word hashtags that by definition don't allow for nuance, that don't allow for reserved serious thought, that that go above any sort of proof or evidence or reasoning, but it becomes a popular slogan and it goes, and its effects can be super super harmful and super dangerous. That's number one. We're missing dots, we're missing nuance, we're missing the ability to discuss with our children when our, our families, our friends, when we're discussing issues. Are we just repeating a very hard line, one-sided issue? And it's either you're in this way of thinking or you're out. Very binary yes or no. Or is there nuance or is there understanding, is there respect for other person? That leads to the second Factor that's missing in today's dialogue, and that is civility. Menschlichkeit in Yiddish. To be a mensch, to be a refined person. That means that when you're frustrated and distraught, you don't just give in to the impulse of storm the building and do what I want, or burn up a garbage bin because I'm upset. That's the opposite of of being a mensch, of being refined, of being somebody that is 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 unique unique as a human that you can look at the person and say that's a refined person that even when you don't get your way even when you're frustrated even when uh things you're disappointed in things to act in a civil manner. and that that perhaps is is from the the factors we can learn from here to become more refined in ourselves and i'm happy to jump in on this if anyone wants to take lead on this that if we want to actually do something instead of let's say, posting about it in our stories. Uh, if we want to start a, a a group that's looking to refine ourselves in speech, I'm, I I have much to work on in, in the realm of speech, in the realm, realm of actions and characteristics. Let's start a, a, a chabura. We, we're doing a chavrusa, which is more individual-type learning, but if we can start a group, a, a chabura, a group of people are coming together to become more refined, to become more civil, to become more... Uh, nuanced in our discussions that he quotes of his father-in-law. Whenever a kid would say something, he would say, how do you know that? Even when he would agree, how do you know that? And the kid would say, what do you mean? Everybody knows this. Well, how do they know it? Where's it coming from? To challenge ourselves, to be objective, to look at things at its source, not to just take things in its popular slogan, but to really get to the core of the issue. And he just concludes his article as an exhortation to the community and saying that this common trend right now of being so enthusiastic about specific politicians, specific political parties, is a foreign to a Torah personality. This cult of personality and parties, we have to realize that the Torah is not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's not this, it's not that, it's not this politician. Torah is above that, it's, and, and by pinning it into a certain politician says the Torah says to go this way or to vote for this person, that is going to be minimizing the Torah. You can't allow the Torah to become a hook to hang your theories on, to hang your affiliations on, to this enthusiasm for specific politicians. Those are, are, are if those are the role models, that in itself is a crucial factor that's missing from the Torah personality. It's such a cool idea. It's my own interpretation. It's a novel interpretation, reading it into the psukim in the Torah, but I think it's so true. Let me know if you agree or disagree. This is in the beginning of Exodus. It's the first quote that we have from Moses. the first quote that the Torah relays from Moshe, Moshe's first saying, and it's so powerful. So it begins, the story begins, Moshe Moshe became a gadol. He became great. He became great. What does it mean he became great? What's greatness? How does the Torah define greatness? What happens? Moshe walks out and he sees that there's an Egyptian abusing a Jew. Moshe looks around and he sees nobody's intervening, nobody's helping. He goes, he takes action, he takes initiative, he steps in and saves the Jew from the, uh, from the hands of his abuser. That is greatness. Greatness is being able to see somebody else's pain and taking action to help them. Then he sees two people fighting. We still don't have a quote yet. He sees two people fighting. And I guess it's really the second quote that I'm excited about. The first thing is part of the story. He says, Lama acha, Wicked one, Russia. Lama acha, Why are you hitting your friend? And the person turns to Moses. He turns to Moshe and he says, Mi Who made you a man? Who told you to say anything? What's your business? Who are you? Who made you anything? Who appointed you? Moshe responds and he says, Now I know. These three words. Now I know the problem. Rashi says he quotes the Midrash. He quotes the Torah. And Moshe was bothered. He's like, I don't understand. Why did the Jewish people end up in exile? What was their, what caused this destiny? Why are they the ones? And he says, now I see why. Now I see why. Number one is because you're hitting each other. You're not intervening when people are in pain. But number two, the attitude of me ish. Who made you a leader? Who are you? Let everybody just do their own thing, live their own lives. When you see a problem, if it's not your problem, then forget about it. Move it on to the they, the capital T. They, they should do this. This system, people, whenever they have a... A challenge, or they see a, a deficiency, whether it's a school system, or organization, or a relationship. They say, "Why did they just do that? Why would they?" Moshe says, "That you're going to be stuck. You're going to be stuck in the sense of of exile if that's your attitude. Of it's up to them. You got to take. You got to be a Vayigda. You got to take on the responsibility Vayigda. You see a problem. You see a problem in the Jewish people. You see a problem in a relationship. You see a problem." In a community, in a school, instead of fetching, instead of complaining, instead of pointing out the flaws, jump in, take the one, take resolution. Today's chapter, Living in the Presence, about secrets. It's mamash, it's for real, so deep, uh, very penetrating idea here. So, take a sip of uh, coffee I'm drinking right now, some area pressed. Single origin coffee from Peru. Delicious stuff. So the Aeropress is super cool. It's a very low-tech device. Basically a funnel and vacuum seal. So you heat up water, you grind up the coffee, put it in the grounds, and then you vacuum seal it with like a plunger. And you plunge the coffee straight through a filter. So it's not involving any electricity. It's just... The power, the pressure of the hot water, the vapor being sealed in and then pushing through the plunger, it releases the all the wonderful power and magic inside the coffee bean and straight into your cup. So it's sort of like this mix hybrid between an espresso because it has that pressure and the coffee itself. So delicious stuff. So take a sip of this for this one because soed living a secret. So first of all, there's a great desire at least i have a i think it it's common because <laughs> obviously it is because there, there's such a huge industry for this of like finding the secret to life finding the the meaning i there's like this new podcast now i just saw uh, yesterday life of awesome how to live a life of awesome how you can find awesomeness or you know, a book unlocking greatness how can you unlock your personal greatness and there's like this desire like what is that secret? What's the secret? How can I just live a life of awesome? I just, all I need to do is pay 1499. I buy the book and now I'm able to uh, find my inner greatness or live a life of awesome. And there's now, I don't know the numbers, but there's it's, it's got to be hundreds of thousands of different um, books, ideas, speeches, courses that promise you the secrets to living a life of amazing, amazing times. And when you look at this from a Torah perspective, so first of the, the, the word secret sowed, sowed in, in Hebrew secret. It's commonly, and Dr. Epstein points out mistakenly referred to as like Kabbalah, Kabbalah's secrets, the secrets of the Torah. Now, You have to understand, he says, this is a misnomer because there's two types of secrets. There's a secret when you have information and you're just not giving it over yet. So if a couple, let's say, finds out that they've been uh, granted the the most wonderful gift in the world, the gift of of childhood, they have a child, that they're going to be a child, that the woman is pregnant, is, first of all, such an unbelievable joy and gratitude and realization of, of the miraculous nature of human existence and, and just the feelings are, are indescribable. Now, most couples won't share that information right away. They'll wait a few months before telling their family and friends. So that's a secret in a sense that it's eventually going to be let out. It's just that people right now don't have all the information. That's one type of secret. But it's not really... A, a true secret in in Jewish wisdom in Torah, even though you haven't yet shared it, and you might not ever share it, but that's not the secret, and and therefore even Kabbalah is not a secret. Commonly, Kabbalah today it's not it's not a secret. It's just people might not know it, but you could know it. There's a lot of ways to find out the information. You could do a Google search. You could get some superficial way of getting it for sure, you know, Kabbalah center type things. It's not a secret that you can't find out. Uh, Even if something, even if it's written perhaps in a very uh, cryptic way and its terminology is deliberately um, written in in a complex way to obfuscate, obfuscate uh, their meanings to the uninitiated, uninitiated. Nevertheless, it doesn't um, uh, make them a secret, right? Just because you have a, a menu in Mandarin doesn't make it that it's a secret. It's just you don't know a quantum physics. It's not a secret, it's just complex. It's hard to understand. So then what is a true secret? A real secret? And the secret, this attitude of Son, which is going to be a key element in cultivating Yeshuvadat and cultivating mindfulness, you're gonna need this element of secretness, of developing your own inner secret. What does this mean? What does this mean? What is a secret? This type of secret is gonna be something that cannot be spoken. It's something that no matter how much you share, you could blast it all over Instagram. It's still a secret. Love, for example. Your love, if you, if you experience love and you're in love with somebody, then no matter how much you talk about it with a person, not that it's a good idea, but that's a separate point. Externalizing the affinity towards some, um, somebody or something, um, which, so I'm not going to talk about the fact that today is STM my myself's seventh anniversary. Uh, I'm not going to talk about what she means for me because there's no, no point in that. Um, but on, on, on a deeper note, the the secret itself comes from because there are certain things that can't be spoken. You can't talk about your love for a child. Same way. You can't describe color to somebody who's blind the same way. You can't describe Uh, the taste of ice cream to somebody who never tasted it the same way you can't describe music to somebody who's deaf. The words, just it's an indescribable thing. It has no words. It's not that you just don't know how to explain it, but it it has no words. And even if you spill the ink of the sea to explain it, you're not going to touch its essence. Words are the most powerful way of trying to transmit thoughts and feelings, but they're just garments. They're just external garments of the essence. And the essence could remain a secret, uh, uh, depending on what that essence is. So Kabbalah, for example, no matter how you explain it, it's very essence, it's still a sword, it's still a secret. It's a secret in the sense that if you don't experience it, if it's not real for you, if you're not on the levels, if you're not on that spiritual level that you have the basis of all the revealed Torah, you're not going to be able to get to the essence. It's a joke, it's a futile experiment. It's like writing a parenting book based on what you've read out of a book, but you were never a parent. Uh, for a certain degree, you'll never, you'll never get to that point, no matter how prolific of an author you might be but having that experience is totally different. It's completely different. So then there are certain things that you can't teach. You can read as much as you want about quantum physics, about Mandarin language or esoteric Kabbalah. You can read whatever you want, but a sood, a real secret cannot be read. It can't be taught because it's how you experience it. It's how your soul grasps it. It's not a body of knowledge that's separate and discrete from your own identity. There's you and then whatever concept you're trying to learn. No longer, no longer are you a person writing about love, parenting, or mindfulness. Rather, the thing has to become a part of you. It's not that you're writing about mindfulness, it's that you are mindful. You're not writing about parenting, you are a parent. That is when you can internalize it. And when it comes to the topic, let's say, of Hashem, talking about Hashem. So you could talk all you want about Hashem. You could prove back and forth that there's evidence that there's solid reason to believe in Hashem. And this is you know, my line of work where we're on campuses and we're encountering all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds. And many would self-identify as agnostic or they never really explored much of the arena of you know the different Arguments pro and for belief in a divine power I haven't read through uh, Plato and Aristotle and <laughs> modern day uh, Sam Harris and other popular atheists or religionists that are arguing for or against the evidence or existence of a divine being. Because here's the thing. A lot of people will talk about that, but th- th- it's not good enough. It's not good enough to, to talk about Hashem. It's not good enough to talk to Hashem. It's not good enough to, the same way it's not good enough to talk about parenting or to a parent. You've got to be a parent to actually experience it. So if we want to experience mindfulness, if we want to experience Hashem, and it's not enough to talk about it. we just get, we got to start doing it. You can talk about exercise all you want. But if you don't actually get on the treadmill, nothing's gonna be happening. So this is why my own personal practice, even if even though I enjoy the topic so much, I love the debate and I love debate in general, and I love um the, the intellectual aspects and the arguments pro and for, that's not gonna be my, my lead. That's not what I'm gonna be teaching about because it's not it's not about the how many speeches and how many books and how many actions you've done. About, on the subject of Hashem, we got we, we or I need to finally stop talking to, at and about Hashem and just be with Hashem, just be there, uncover it within. That's the secret. That's the, the unlocking the mindfulness of being present in the moment. It's just being there instead of, you know, instead of talking about meditation, instead of about about to. You're, you're involved on the periphery and it's something external to you. You just got to experience it. And yeah, you're right. Yesterday, we talked about that at times or today also that you can't always feel it. You want to feel it. And sometimes you'll try and you won't feel it, but you got to have that patience and the humility and saying, I'm, I'm here in the moment. I'm here in this moment. exactly how it is, even if it's not as successful as I hoped. But here I am. I'm present in the, the very reality and that in itself is the connection. And once you experience that, once you're there, then that, that's, it stops. There's, you don't need a, any more intellectualizing of the experience. You're you show you have settled into that full knowledge and that a full experience. So even if your whole life you've experienced that, like a research, researcher writing about parenting or writing about love, then when you experience it yourself, fall in love, or becoming a parent, that takes you to the world of Sod, of experience, of lived reality with those emotions. It's no longer uh, extrinsic interest. When you live that life, of that secret life, that you realize that the place where you are right now is the Holy of Holies, that right now you're with Hashem, Hashem cares about you, Hashem has a vested interest in you, you are exactly where you're supposed to be. You have that awareness that there's no journey to a promised land that you have to get to, but you're here right now. You just got to unlock it within you right there. You don't need a new book, a new documentary, a new podcast, a new course to unlock that. That's that's the soot. In reality, this is the difference between knowledge and belief. Knowledge and belief. King David said, I know that Hashem is great. He doesn't say I believe in it. Because belief is something... Not in you. You believe in it. There's You either could or not. Whereas something knowledge, you experience it. That's it. That's why the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the first one of the Ten, it's not a command. Think about it. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am Hashem, your God, that took you out of Egypt. There's no command there. You knew that. The Jews there, they were there. They knew it. They felt it. They experienced it. That's what we're trying to get to. That's the mission statement. That's the number one. That's the principle. It's there. It's real. To experience life as it is not to project our own belief system onto how we want it to be, but just to be there, to, to experience it. That's the, so that's the, the secret. And that could explain a very uh, cryptic comment in the Torah. There's a concept of Pesach Sheni, second Passover, Second Passover, what does that mean? Not second Passover, you've celebrated in your life. But if you miss Passover the first time around because you're in a state of Tumah, if you're in a state of disconnect, Tumah, anytime you come into contact with something dead, doesn't have life potential within it. Touch a dead body, for example, you're in a state of Tumah. So let's say you're in a state of Tumah the first time Passover comes around then there's a second Passover a month later that you could tap into. This is in Baal Midbar in the fourth book of the Torah, chapter nine, that you could get that second time around. Now, what if you're trying to get the first time around, you're trying to get there. You're trying to get to the temple. You're trying to get to the base of Mikdash to partake in that first, um, in the first Passover. And, Oh, so, so, so sorry. there's two things. Number one, if you miss the first Passover because you are in a state of tuma, of disconnect. Or number two, if you're far away. If you're too far away from from Jerusalem, from Yerushalayim, where all the people would go to celebrate Passover. If you're too far away, then you can make it up the second time around. Now Rashi comments and he says, what does this mean you're too far away? You're too far away from Jerusalem? He says, even if you're a step away, you're a foot outside of Temple Mount of Harabayat where the Kotal stands today, where the Alaska mosque was built thousands of years afterward on top of it. So if you're a foot just outside, you would be called very far away and you have the ability to make it up again a month later. Now, the question is, this seems puzzling. You're a foot away, you're a few inches away. That's gonna be enough to absolve you around from the first time around. How How could that be considered that you missed it, that you're far away? The answer is that in spirituality, distance is not measured by inches. It's not physical proximity. In spirituality, this distance is where your soul is. Where are you? Where's the essential you? If you feel far away, you could be in the holiest of places, but still feel far away. You could be in the most unholy of places and still be so tapped in. So connected, and the shift, the difference is the so the secret. Where are you? Where are you in the moment when you say Baruch atah Hashem? Begin every blessing with these words, Baruch You, are tell You, Baruch are the source of all blessings, all goodness in the world, Hashem. Not only that, but it's a commitment for the future. When you're saying those words, you're saying that in this element. Let's say before I eat this piece of bread with this piece of bread, you are going to be blessed. Hashem, I'm giving you the blessing. I'm going to take this energy that I get from this bread, go out and put out into the world something good. That's the uh, the dual meanings here in the blessing. Number one is that the source of all blessings is Hashem and that's coming out in the bracha. Number two is that I'm going to continue on that current of goodness, that shefa, that that stream, that flow of, of greatness gonna be in the flow and the most important words in judaism a great rabbi once said the most important word in the entire Amidah, and the entire prayer is atah you personal not a third person not a, a vague external term but it's real it's there and when you have that then it doesn't matter if you're on temple mount it doesn't matter if you're if you've just committed uh a serious failure in your eyes. At that moment, it's you. You're connected. You have that secret. You have your mind, body, and soul are all wrapped up in the you, in the atah. So that's the challenge that when you say it, when you say the word atah, baruch atah you ashab Is it real? Do you feel it? Do you feel like you're speaking to the most dearest and intimate friend? If not, then you're not in the world of Sode. Then you're not in this world of secret. I personally, right now, I'm not in my life where I I feel it on such a visceral, real level. And it's disheartening, I guess. It's hard. Um, I want to feel like that. And therefore, that's where it comes in, this idea. I think this is very hand-in-hand with what we learned yesterday of patience, of putting it on your heart. Fine, sometimes it's not in your heart. You don't feel it. But if it's on your heart, then you're always waiting you're waiting for that moment when you'll feel that connected. It might be in five minutes. It might be in five days, whatever it is, but you're zoned in. You have the patience, you have the humility, and you, you're, you have the presence of mind, the presence of being that you're just alive and in your zoned in the moment. That's what we're going for. That's what we're striving for. Hopefully we get there. And, um, thank you for, for. Yeah. If you have any thoughts on this, it's an interesting topic. I'm not, uh, I don't think we have a conclusion here, but this is definitely the start of a conversation of, of soda, of living it in, uh, being in that moment. So we'll have to hear our thoughts on this time now for the Kotzker Wednesday, Wednesday wisdom from the Kotzker Rebbe, who is known for his incredible insights, incisive remarks, cutting straight to the point going for the jugular, always seeking truth no matter what cost. And we spoke yesterday of an incredible, fresh idea of having spiritual patience. That same way in the physical world, if you try to push something too hard and don't give it its proper time and attention, you're frustrated and you just want to get it done and you just push through it and you end up doing a sloppy job. So too in our spiritual jobs, When we're trying to connect, we're trying to unlock our deepest selves and and really grow as people, we're met with frustration and it's not going. And we don't see the immediate results that we might be hoping for, but you got to stay your course. You got to hold on to it. You got to be patient, obtain, and we quoted from Rabbi Nachman that at times you might see, despite all your efforts and determination, you just simply can't achieve what you want, don't be discouraged. Just wait. Just wait. Don't let it push you off course. Wait for the time comes right. Now the Kotzkei has a beautiful thought. We say in the Shema, say twice a day, ha'ela, you should take these words of Torah, Asher Anorchi Mitzavacha Hayom, that I, Hashem, have directed you to to perform, Allah L'Vavacha, and put them on your heart. Now ask the Kaskarevi. It should say, Bilavavah, in your hearts. Put them in your hearts. We want it to be real. We want it to be genuine. We want it to be a part of us. So what does it mean put it on your heart? Why does it just go more direct and say, put it in your heart. Make it a part of you. And the Kaskarevi explains. Because sometimes, a lot of times he says, Al rov, majority of the times, our hearts are closed. We're dull. We can't, we can't feel, we have so much going on, so much extranities, so much uh, noise in our lives, but there's no person that doesn't have a time that his heart opens, there's no person that doesn't have feelings of yearnings and of spirituality that will hit her, at a moment that she's not expecting it. And that's the idea, to put the words on your heart so that to learn something and internalize it and keep it ready for that moment, that moment when spirituality hits, the moment when your heart's open, when you're real, when you're honest with yourself, boom, you can put it right in. That's part of the understanding when we daven, when we ask Hashem, Pesach libi besorah at the end of the Amidah, the end of the Shemot Eser, we say, Pesach libi besorah sacha, open my heart to your Torah. What does it mean, open my heart? Because I'm going to put the Torah there. I'm going to be ready. I'm at, at, on call to be able to plug in, to feel, to be real, and ride out, to have that spiritual patience for that moment to come and jump into it. And this leads to one of my favorite songs. One of my favorite songs. I heard it first at a Hasidic Tish in Bnei Brak in Israel, Visionet. It was on Sukkot. And the song goes, Oh, you beside you, you beside oh, oh, yeah, you you uh, that's the words. May uh, Hashem open up our hearts in his Torah. And that's the uh that's the message there. That we're gonna write out, we're gonna cultivate the spiritual patience, this how to be ready and uh open up to taste the the sweetness and the depths of Torah. Thank you so much for listening, for being my Chavrusa. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any connections, thoughts, stories, please, please reach out to me, 347-893-4467 or across social media channels or email podcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this, please, please continue to listen, subscribe, share it, share it with a friend, share it with a relative, uh, increase the community of ideas that we have here. Have a wonderful day.